Cool. Going live. We are getting live. We're getting live. We're getting live. And we are live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to meetup number 73 in the Data on Kubernetes community. Uh, my name is Bart Farrell, and as usual, it's a pleasure to be with all of you today. If for some reason you have not subscribed to our YouTube channel or you are not following us on Twitter, I highly, highly recommend doing so. Now, we are very easy to find, uh, very easy to follow, very easy to get in touch with. Um, you can jump in our Slack, happy to answer questions, happy to meet and greet, um, and always looking for, for new folks out there to, to get involved. And speaking of getting involved, we have an extra special way to get involved next, uh, you know, coming up in the next KubeCon in October, where we will be hosting a co-located event as we did before earlier this year in KubeCon. Uh, we're having, be, having tons of different talks focusing on the subject of how to be running stateful workloads on Kubernetes, databases, operators, all the good stuff that comes along with that. So if you're interested, and particularly if you're interested in sharing from an end user perspective, um, very easy to, to get involved, like I said, while we'll share the CFP here in the, in the chat. Um, so if you or somebody in your company has an idea or a concept that you would like to be sharing, please take a look at our CFP um, so that you can do so. In terms of other stuff, also, like I said, very easy to find on our YouTube channel and elsewhere. Um, you can see all the different upcoming sessions that we have. We've got tons of live streams planned uh, for the next few weeks and even months, all right? Generally doing around two to three and even sometimes four per week. We've got live streams for, for folks with more experience. We've also got live streams for, for folks that are just starting out. Um, so always remember that you can ask questions in the chat. You can ask questions in our Slack. We'd be more than happy to get in touch with you. And today, uh, I'm located here in, in Spain. Maybe we can do just a little quick check. Where is uh, everyone today? I'm going to put this in the chat. Because it's always nice to get a feel for, you know, one of the benefits of, of all these virtual events that we've been doing uh, since the pandemic started is being able to connect with people from other countries. And I was actually kind of doing this diversity training today for the Linux Foundation. And one of the things they explained is, you know, some of the strongest organizations are the ones that are able to bring in people from, from different backgrounds um, that have different ways of thinking about things. So it's always nice to connect with people from different countries because I feel like it makes you a, a richer and, and stronger person in terms of the way that you approach uh, solving problems, uh, the way you can empathize with different people. So anyway, our speaker today is Barack. And I believe, and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong, in Hebrew, does that mean blessing? Um. No, it's uh, the translation is flash. Oh, even flash. better. Flash. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so start the first fun fact that we learned today. Thank you very much for the correction on that. Anyway, Barack Omar is, is joining us live from, from Tel Aviv. How are you today? How's it going? Great, thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. And, and it's very hot today in Tel Aviv and I hope it will get colder in time. <laughs> likewise, likewise, for sure. Now, in terms of in terms of your experience, you know, everyone kind of arrives at Kubernetes from from a different angle, has a different story. In your particular case, what was the first time that you heard about Kubernetes? What was the first time that you started working with it? How did that happen? So I think it was um, my passion for open source. I think it was part of listening to all the hacker news and everything that comes out. And of course, every time somebody is taking a Google project and sourcing up something similar outside the company you as a developer you always try to okay what it does why, why do we need it let's play with it and it was i think after i was into containers and then people was starting to adopt any cluster management systems then i saw that kubernetes exists and how you can easily define services and and uh, spin up clusters and uh, complete systems uh, very easily. And I don't remember the exact time, but it was, I think it was a long time ago. But like any new technology, it looked like it took a lot of time to get it into production. And I think that uh, still a lot of companies are using Kubernetes, but some uh, technologies are not exactly uh, matching for Kubernetes yet. I think this is one of the reasons that Kubernetes is uh, still using new version and new capabilities for each use case. Very, very my take point. on Kubernetes also not. No, 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 no. <laughs> but it, what, but why is yours less valid than anybody else's? I, I think that the you know adoption period that as much as we 
we're talking about this all the time. So, you know, we're hearing the word and seeing the word Kubernetes every day, but that doesn't mean when you go start knocking doors on doors in different companies, that it might sound like something that's completely foreign, right? That, that's, that's very strange. And, and like you said, one thing is getting started with it. Another thing is really putting it into production. So that's another, that's another thing. And then once again, in our community being focused with data on Kubernetes and very curious as to how we're going to see this today through uh, in the case of Treeverse and, and LakeFS through Kubeflow, is when you first started hearing about data on Kubernetes, how did that go? And, and what were some of the things that came to mind based on perhaps your experience working with uh, containers, Docker, and other things of that nature? So uh, my concern was basically because at the time I was working with different kind of databases is how that stateful state manages. But I think most of the talks were about how um, software that was built in a time where transition of containers between machines was very hard or not uh, uh, not designed to do it. I mean, uh, databases basically uh, was a huge machine or a strong machine that was getting a lot of requests, knows where the data was, uh, know the data layout and everything. And when you taking it into a cluster where everything is transient, basically, it can run on a node and then on a single pod and then on three pods and then still communicate the same service and access the same data. I think most of the technologies had to do a small shift in order to adapt, to enable the same level of service to run on cluster like that. And I think most of the engineering that was done when Kubernetes was adopted was in in that field, uh, enable discovery, enable a way to partition the service layer in order to have something run on the cluster and still work uh, um, without any downtime or losing the data. Th this is uh, this is the way I saw it at least. When it yeah. And once again, I think everybody comes at it from a different perspective based on what they've been doing in the past. But as you said, you know, a lot of and a lot of the things that we we we, we talk about in, in our community, the sort of, you know, initial approach of Kubernetes, you know, coming from Borg, coming from Google, then once being released and there's major, major focus on it's it's not designed for for stateful for stateful workloads. So let's just keep everything statelessly. I'm realizing, uh, you know, the introduction of new features such as stateful sets, I believe in, in version 1.5. And then from there, further, uh, you know, advancements that have, that have been taking, uh, taking place and giving shape to Kubernetes, creating those other opportunities. And like I said, you know, you know we're doing session number 73. So we're seeing more and more folks that are able to, to share these experiences from lots of different, you know, lots of different companies, lots of different uh, end users as well, um, whether it's in healthcare sector, uh, e-commerce, retail, financial services, uh, IOT, lots of different areas. And so seeing that this can happen, the benefits, one thing is the what and the how, and the other one is the why, of course. Um, and seeing those, like I said, those three questions, that gives us more confidence that this is something that is here to stay and is only going to grow. Um, so with that in mind, can we jump into what's going on with Treeverse and LakeFS? Sure. So, um... You want me to share the screen? Perfect. And if you want, you can just give us a little bit of background about what Treeverse is all about. You said you've been there for a year and a half. It's around two years old. And maybe just a little bit of background about how that got started. Yeah, so it was, I think, at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was um, security company, uh, web security. And I was looking for something new to do. And then I met uh, one of the founders. And he was told me about that project that is planning to, to do the idea of uh, uh, Treeverse was to build a project that will um, help and um, build better data data lakes uh, by um, by building by by filling the missing gaps when you are working with object stores and like um, having uh, options to. Um, manage your data as you manage your code. But uh, I think we are, well, I'm heading of myself uh, before uh, my presentation. So maybe I'll-, I'll as a, I'm sure we'll get to that in, yeah, we'll yeah, get to that but, in time. But for me, it was uh, something new. Uh, I, like, uh, I like to 
I like challenges. So open source, it's first time for me in working in an open source project and working with uh, um, data lake. Uh, previously, it was uh, security and enterprise, uh, enterprise scheduling. I did a little mobile. Um, a lot of years, a lot of languages, a lot of frameworks, um, a lot of distributed systems uh, that I worked on, and it was a good match, and uh, it was, uh, until now, a very good ride for me. Very good. Cool. Well, let's check out your presentation. And just as a reminder to folks in, in the audience, you can feel free to put your questions in the chat, and we'll answer them accordingly. Perfect. This is okay? Yeah. So, and building a reproducible experiments using Kubernetes, Kubeflow, and LegFS. So the main goal in this talk is first uh, tell you about what is Kubeflow and LegFS, and of course, how LegFS can help you when you are running a machine learning workflow and you want to have them reproducible. And to emphasize that, this talk is, will, will be more on the data side as, a, as opposed to a machine learning side. So if you are into data and issues related to data when you are using machine learning, I think this talk will help you. So what is Kubeflow? Kubeflow is a machine learning toolkit running over Kubernetes. It's a collection services or framework, sorry, and tools. If you can see the diagram, there are algorithms, there are monitoring services, there are uh, <clears throat> networking. All of these parts are, uh, are called uh, Kubeflow as uh, a system for machine learning. We call it system because it helps you in the development stage through the deployment stage. It is, uh, it is used by data scientists that will want to build a workflow or as an engineer or operation, when you want to take the model, for example, and deploy it. I think in previous talk you had um, uh, Kubeflow served um, a model as part of the session and it was done by a single tool inside Kubeflow. Um, Kubeflow pipelines is a tool inside Kubeflow that's responsible on running a graph of uh, steps. Each step is a single instance of a component in the Kubeflow pipeline um, that can execute a single step or um, anything you can containerize. For example, uh, in the workflow it's called component because you can include a set of inputs and set of outputs, and of course the dependencies between them, or you can condition the output and have a set of uh, steps that while running them, you will have the end result. For example, in machine learning, it can be deploying your new model. In order to have this pipeline, the Kubeflow includes the UI, the, the one that you see on the right, an engine that executes that model, and a Python SDK that helps you build those steps. It's very similar to other technologies where they give you an SDK in a language you can develop or you can relate in, in data. Uh, usually it, it is Python. And also in this case, you can describe the workflow in Python code, execute it, and you get a model in a YAML or in deployment uh, file where you can uh, deploy it into your uh, Kubeflow pipeline. Okay, first, sorry, Brock, first question, highly technical question from a highly technical audience member who's Tim Vandekeer. What is the mascot uh, that is at the bottom? Absolut. The The logo for, for the company that's at the bottom left, what is that? It's an uh, ex, um, Axelot, uh, it's a, it's a fish that is, uh, 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 call it, um, it, it's a kind of fish that lives in a lake of, uh, I think it's in Spain, um, but it's a very cute uh, fish. And I think we, uh, the idea was that it's uh, living in a lake and because our project is uh, working on data lake, we wanted something related. 
I can uh, put a link. Okay, cool. Okay, yeah, so if you put a link here in the chat, I will. Okay. Very, very good. Excellent question, Tim. Always hitting on the, the hard technical issues. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, crack on. Sure. So um, running a workflow pipeline, uh, running a workflow as part of a, uh, running a pipeline and can also uh, have a set of configuration of parameters. And that is called an experiment. And that means that I can run the same pipeline with different set of parameters and it will be a different um, experiment. Um, running experiment uh, over and over again and getting the same results is a very, um, very important property. It's important because when you develop a model or for example, for me, it will be a code. Uh, when I take the code and run it two times with the same input, I'm expecting the same output. In machine learning, when you are building a, a model or something that gives you results at the end, something that you can um, reproduce, you know that you can always go back to the same data set, run the same code, and get the same uh, results, give you trust that the code you developed or the model or the workflow you developed is uh, repeatable. We are not building something that can be created once and then throw it away or deploy it into production and say there is only one of a kind or like it and there can never be other. We will need to develop everything from the start. We want to, um, to be consistent. consistent. We want consistency from our pipeline. We want to have trust. We want to, uh, to be safe that in case we want to go back and change something, we know that if we didn't change anything, we'll get the same results. Result in the model, it can be something um, similar, but not the exact, um, because um, sometimes, um, most of the times when you are building models, it's uh, compute, uh, using computation. And there are many challenges well, when you are building a model. And reproducibility in a model can be structured or um, depends on three core elements. The code you wrote, the environment you executed in, and the data you used to produce the output, the result. Um, one of the problems, uh, one of the many problems when you are using a computation model is that computers are not exact. And when you have the algorithm that using random or floating point or execute a, a computation in parallel, some of the results will be different. I mean, if you take them, they are not twins. They will not be exactly the same, but they should produce the same model in, 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 in how you use it. If I'm checking the model or checking the end result with the same input, I'm expecting to get a similar result. And the idea is to, uh, for you to say what is a um, similar result for the end model. If we go over those elements, we currently use uh, editors and source control for keeping our code aligned. That means usually when I'm deploying a new code into production, I can always have a label saying which commit uh, created or used by the, the, the code or the model or the project at that point. In terms of environment, we have Kubeflow. And Kubeflow makes sure that everything is running inside a container and running in the same workflow. That means that I'm using the same operating system for each part and I'm using the same algorithm with the same version for each part and running the same workflow at the same order so the environment should be kept the same. And the data, it depends on how you uh, extract or ingress your data. The, the data collection phase is always differ um, between how you work or the company or your data sources. In our case, uh, LakeFS is working on object storage. Uh, 
uh, we see a lot of companies using uh, data lake to store the data and uh, making sure that the same data is used for each experiment or each workflow usually uh, comes with a set of rules. Uh, I want to run an experiment. I will copy the data aside and run my experiment and see the result. If everything will be okay, I will take the data and move it to a different folder, copy it to a different folder, sorry, and then I will have it safely until the model is used in production. And tomorrow I'll do the same uh, until somebody will tell me I need to um, uh, go back and then I will look up the folder based on naming or something like that. And uh, there are other ways to do it and we'll see how LakeFS can help with that. So what is LakeFS? LakeFS uh, in one line is a atomic version data lake on top of your object store. What does it mean? It means that uh, LakeFS can, is, a, is a thin layer of metadata that serves your object store for all your tools in your company ecosystem, but keeps uh, access and uh, give you access to the data using uh, S3 interface. That means that if your current tools can access uh, S3, you can point, point them into the endpoint of LakeFS and continue working with your object store. But that data layer will also provide you a set of capabilities like Git, but on your object store. That means that every time I want to um, uh, access a branch, for example, I can create one, change something, commit back to the branch, and go back to where I was at the main branch or change anything like I do with my code. So for example, if I want to, um, sorry, if I want to um, take the example of our source code and clone our repository, change something, experiment and commit it back, usually it's not, it's not, it's an easy task because it's not a lot of data. But in object store, there is um, the data sets are huge. And the data lake holds a, um, a large amount of data. And cloning information or keeping uh, all the objects as part of each branch, uh, like we do in our code, is very hard to do. So LakeFS doesn't move the data itself. It, keeps track on the metadata where the data is stored and can give you the illusion of, or not the illusion, but the way, the view as if it was branched and cloned into your uh, uh, branches or commits. Um, so how it really works. In the API section that how you interact with LakeFS, we have an open API and of course S3 interface that all the tools can work with like any other source or any other data source. And underlying, uh, the underlying object system can be S3 or Google storage or Azure Blob. And we have more adapters to work with different underlying storage. The versioning engine give you a way to commit changes like you commit code that every time you change something, if you want to uh, branch from it or uh, commit above it, you can just uh, do atomic transaction that will show you all the objects changes that was made in that commit. Uh, for developers or people, uh, work with Git, it will look very natural as you can do the same thing you do with your files or sources, but with your data, you get a, a access to all your object store, but you can operate it like any other source control 
without worrying about anything like we do today because we can always revert uh, or branch to experiment or uh, uh, pull back the changes by looking at the point you want in your data. So the use cases for our machine learning workflow is first of all experimentation because LakeFS makes it easy for the new tools. For example, you want to run the same code with a different algorithm and check the result. You don't have to worry about uh, deleting anything or overriding anything. You can always create a branch which just point on different metadata without you copying all the data for a different folder. You get the same result. You will get a new branch which would look like the same object store, but without uh, uh, changing the original branch or um, the other tools can continue look at the main branch and continue to see the original copy. And if the experiment didn't work or you don't want anything from that experiment, you can throw this experiment aside or you can commit the data and merge it back to the main branch. Debuggability is another use case where you can now have a, for me, my source code, source control is also the story. When I look at the, at the code and I want to know what happened, I just check the log, go back, move the, uh, my environment to a specific commit, and then I check my code there. Now we can do the same at data. We can check the log, we can move to the state the branch was yesterday or before the latest commit and check what change, or I can roll back to that commit if I want to, which is very helpful to understand uh, uh, changes that are not planned or uh, at least explain at, a, at, a, at, at the object store level and not in a single file. In collaboration. Because every time we branch, we'll get a different uh, working area, you can say of it. It's a, it's a branch where you can read and write data. We get a, a, a kind of isolation. And data isolation also helps you collaborate in a way that you can take all your incoming data, for example, or incoming um, all your tools that produce data and keep them into your storage and have them write it into one branch. And then when they commit the information, all the files will appear in the second branch. The okay, real quick, we got a, we got a question. Mm -hmm. um, when adding new data using Lake FS, is there also some kind of Git flow then as you create a branch of new data and merge this with the master? How does the Git flow or Git flow, up, uh, how does uh, Git flow or does Git flow apply to adding new data? Good question, because I think I have it in one of the next slides. Basically, you can take the Git flow as a practice uh, for anybody. In the audience, uh, the Git flow practices when I'm working on a feature, for example, adding new uh, code and then merge the feature, uh, the feature into the main branch. You can take this practice, but apply it into data by saying that I'm branching out from one data source, running an algorithm or producing data or, or uh, uh, changing data in my uh, feature branch. And then I can merge back the changes into the main branch. So this is very similar to Git flow. If you can take also, for example, capabilities like verification, you can also say, I want to verify the branch before I merge. So we can also include in running test, for example, or flow or verification before merging back. So this is another use case uh, which uh, is relevant to uh, policies where we can take um, extra measure before we change something in the file system, in the object store, I'm sorry, when we uh, verify changes, when we do it, then perform them on a the branch and then 
we select if we want to merge or not. And the original branch will be kept clean all this time. That answers the question? I believe, uh, I believe so. If not, just keep going. Like you said, you'll be kind of addressing it in the next slide too. Yeah, so branching and experimenting. This is the use case that is relevant for running machine learning workflow usually. When we want to experiment, we can uh, branch out for our, from our main branch. We can run our uh, machine learning experiment, which can produce many artifacts on the way. And when, when I'm saying workflow or running a pipeline, usually for machine learning, it, it, more than, it is more than one step usually. Uh, you're talking about raw data usually that need to be filtered, validated, enriched. Uh, uh, you, you need to uh, select uh, specific uh, sets where you want to verify that the model you build is valid or not. All that usually comes in data set that you want to make sure that nothing changes at the point you start your experiment. When you are branching out, you do that. It's, it's like a lightweight copy when you are branching for experiments. So when you are running the experiment and you produce output, you can say that uh, running my experiment can be first step processing the raw data. I can commit the, the first step. And then for example, if I want to run two different experiments with the step that I got, I can branch from that point in time and then run two other experiments and check out the results at the end. Uh, when, when I don't have something like Git for data, what we're usually doing is making sure that I'm using different path, paths or I'm using local storage or I'm uh, just running the experiment from the start and make sure that it doesn't overrun other files that I'm producing and then this is the equivalent part where I don't have to worry about it. Because even if I will override a file or the model in my experiment or in my code, I, it will be on a different branch. It will not change anything on other branches as well. So users, when, when we, we have users that uh, use DecFS for other use cases, one of the questions they had is how they can integrate DecFS with their Kubeflow. So we mapped a branch creation, commit, and merge as a basic blocks that can be used as part of the pipeline in Kubeflow. This is an example of how we integrated it. It's, we use the function-based container ops. And this code is a way for uh, telling LakeFS, I want a new branch. And uh, I can show you a small example of how a pipeline works with interaction with LakeFS and try to simulate something similar to what I just said. And any question before we do that? Um, I, th I think we're good to go. So just jump right into the demo. Let's do it. Okay. So uh, first of all, a couple of words about what I have right now. I have a cluster with Kubeflow and I have a LakeFS running. In, in order to get the cluster running, I, um, I followed the, um, I followed the instruction uh, step by step. It's very easy to do. And this is a very, usually when I'm following the instruction, I'm preparing the same script that I would run again if I need to do it again. So creating the cluster is just producing a YAML file with all my settings and just uh, using, I'm, use, I'm on, sorry, I'm on AWS, so I'm using EKS. And there, uh, with that description, I created a Kubernetes cluster on my environment. Then you will need a tool called uh, Kubeflow Control, which help you define and apply all the changes on the cluster in order to have Kubeflow up and running. It will accept something similar. Uh, 
This is also from the tutorial, it's from the introduction, the manual of Qflow, uh, which I think I edited just the authentication and the region I want the cluster to uh, where is my cluster. And it will give you an endpoint where you can see Qflow. And this is Qflow. And before I'll set anything here, we'll see just a second, like this is like a fest. And what I want to do in this demo is make up a story where I want to have a data source, a file, and it will include records. And I will commit the data into our repository on our main branch. And then I will run a pipeline with an experiment that will not do anything uh, complicated. It will rewrite the information back as a result. And then we will update the records again on the main branch and run another experiment. That will show you that we can run different experiment while the data source changes in order to see that we are having the results and changes over time. But this time I will do it that each experiment will be on a different branch. We can see the result, we can see the branching in action, and we can see that we can safely uh, update our main repository and look back on the commits. And in order to see the reoccurring experience, uh, uh, we will run a third experiment and then we will reference the data as it was at the first commit and check that the result was the same as last time. So let's create a repository. Here I'm um, giving it a name and I'm pointing the storage nemesis is the underlying storage. Currently my uh, LakeFS instance works with AWS S3 underlying storage. I will reference my bucket and the name of the main branch. So this is the object view and currently there are no objects on my repository on the main branch. I will upload one data file and I will give it the same name and will override it with different records each time. And this is the file I have uploaded. The file is on the branch. I can reference it using uh, our API or using S3. I can, for example, do AWS. You can see my terminal. can see the file on the branch. The branching is mapped into S3 path like a, uh, into S3 like a path. So every time I'm referencing a repository, I'm referencing a repository and then the name of the branch and then the records inside. I can commit this change. And we can see the commit logs so the commit logs and when the query and each commit is a point in time where I can see all my lake or all my objects in the object store as it was. So let's go back to Kubeflow and run an experiment that will use that file. I prepared one here. So a pipeline example, and this is the Python code. It, it includes uh, three steps. Let's uh, right when you are building the pipeline and running the code, you will have a YAML file produced will, that will describe your pipeline. So I will apply this pi uh, this pipeline into Kubeflow pipeline example. And I will upload sample. And this is a nice graph that 
we created in our Python code. And here we interact with LakeFS by specifying that we want to create a branch, we want to process the information, do the training in our workflow, and commit the information. The specific workflow will, let's run it. I can pass running parameter to my workflow. So in this example, I will give it the branch name that I want it to create and the source branch that it will use to process the data from or branch from hitting start. Sorry, I didn't create an experiment. And let's create an experiment. So we are in the demo experiment and we want it first time. And if we look, we'll see the same graph, but this time it will implement be built and it will report each step in the running phase. So it created a branch and now it's doing the training part. If we look at LakeFS, we can see that now we have more than one branch can switch to the new branch. We can see the original file we uploaded because this branch was branched from main branch. And there is another file called records result. And it's also already committed. And uh, in my pipeline, I wrote that every commit will use the name of the branch and changes in the commit uh, message. And if we want to see the main branch, you see that we have nothing from the experiment we are doing right now on the experiment one branch. Okay, let's change. Before before that, we got another question. Does Lake FS also interact with a query engine on top to enable SQL like queries, similar in a like uh, Lakehouse for Databricks? LakeFS behaves like S3 from any perspective. So if you are using Trino or any engine that can process object store for query engine, the specific tool, I, I, I'm not sure if it is on the same use case, uh, it should work. So for example, running Spark over it or Spark SQL and process uh, files in LakeFS, it will be the same as processing them at on N3. Uh, we do not supply query engine above your object store. We supply the thin layer of the metadata in order to give you the Git-like operations, the, the way you can commit or switch branches for isolation and autonomy. Okay. All right, perfect. Um, okay, so let's refresh that because I think it's all green now. All green. So uh, I want to simulate uh, by uploading another file with a different data. I'm simulating, for example, data set that all in, in our organization always updated to uh, the latest week updates, for example. And this time I will, I'm overriding the records on the main branch and I will commit that change. See that it identified that this file was changed. And let's run the experiment again. I'm selecting the experiment. So selecting the pipeline, giving the experiment a name. Let's 
two and I'm choosing the demo experiment. And I call it experiment two. So we'll be waiting for experiment two that will process the main branch and produce a result into experiment two branch. two branches. The different results. Let's check that we have two different results and I can download it from here. We should get a diff output because we are running the same experiment with different data sets. Now let's run the third experiment. And also that we can see our repository and see our our commits in the main repository and also on the last experiment because the last experiment was running from a commit number two and now we can run it in the third time and this time I want to reference the data as it was at the first day so let's take the reference of first And this is the shorthand to a commit log, like in Git. It's a hashtag that specifying this commit. And I will run the example Python again. Run number three. I have the demo <coughs> experiment. And it will be under branch number three. And the source this time will be the reference to the first commit that experiment one was running off. And you can also use Git, um, sorry, Git, <laughs> LakeFS also support tags. So you can use tags and not hashtags, or you can have the short name, or I can also reference the branch itself. So I can use um, Experiment one branch is the source for experiment three. Uh, all three will work. Sorry, I uh, got another question. And what about integrity checks? Is there any mechanism to verify that files were not tampered with? So uh, LakeFS is not the actual object store. We are leveraging the underlying object store. So any operation that you have on the object store, for example, um, 
read write if read if write completes it means that your object store wrote the, the data so uh, in terms of LakeFS, it will supply the same metadata because it's supplied the S3 interface. So, so you should have the etag record as part of the object record, if that answers the question. I believe so. Sorry, there's a slight delay, so we always got to wait um, a little bit. But so, I believe so. Also also, the protocol itself, uh, the S3 protocol, when you upload an object, the signature and uh, the data signature is part of the protocol. So we support the same protocol. Uh, when you upload data, it's uh, signed the S3 protocol. Um, okay. And oh, what I wanted to do is switch to the latest experiment and download the results. And I want to compare the result from the first run to the result we just downloaded. And they are the same. And that, but basically, it tried to explain why we can help by giving you Git like operation on your object store in your reproducing your machine learning workloads, work, workflow. Sorry. And yeah, also, uh, if you want to read more or get more information about that project or anything, if you have questions, feel free, jump in. And thank you. Very, very good stuff. And it looks like someone was started out with a prayer to the demo gods, and it looked like they really, really listened. This is the second session we've had this week where there was a demo. And, you know, it's not every time that things go this smoothly. So very well done, Barack. Very, very well done. Um, can I get you to stop sharing your screen really quickly because there's something that we'll, we'll have to share before we finish. But also before we finish, just a couple of questions, you know, for folks that are out there and, and are getting started in all this, because like you said, like, you know, your, your journey kind of worked in a, in a certain way. What recommendations would you have based on your experience for, for folks that are getting started out with this stuff? Uh, saying, if I were you, I would definitely recommend taking a look at what first. What would you recommend? Oh, yeah. Well, it depends. Can, can you focus on? Uh, yeah, that's okay. I think, uh, like I said, thinking about thinking about, um, well, actually, I always have the tendency because something that we haven't had enough sessions on, um, and because you said that you were previously working for a cybersecurity firm. Yeah. So in terms of security stuff regarding Kubernetes, uh, because, you know, we've seen, uh, we've seen uh, plenty of things going on with hacking for, for crypto mining. Recently, I believe it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, even the National Security Administration from the United States government, uh, which is not always a major player in this area, came up with a report about how to harden your, uh, how to harden Kubernetes to make it more resistant to attacks. Um, is there anything just in, you know, entry level that you would say like, hey, if I were you, I would definitely keep these things in mind. Yeah, so there are, I think, many best practices, but uh, there are also a couple of tools, but I, I shout out to companies that work in security and cloud, but for example, SNCC or uh, other companies that work in that field specific, it's not the same company that I work in. It's a different security aspect. I was protecting website versus uh, protecting your organization from attacking. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, a lot of the companies, what they are doing is there. There is the design part, and the, there is the production part. So there are tools that you can use when you design the system or set up your cluster that you need to go over the checks checklist that need to be addressed before you deploy. Or if something is already deployed, there are a set of rules that need to apply in order to make them more secured versus. Uh, there are many tools that are already running in production that are there to help you identify attacks that are already there. So uh, I think it, for a start, it's basically reading the best practices for how to define a secure cluster, uh, how to define your object store rights, uh, a lot of role-based role uh, policies that need to apply from start. Usually the problem, as I said, uh, personal uh, uh, opinion only is that 
because companies or people start with what's easy to get working first and then when it's getting to a point where it's too large to manage or to apply those rules it's too late so getting the best practices and the same rules or the best practices as uh, first as possible at your organization will help you get your life better later because a lot of these tools help people that are in a point where they have too much to manage and too much to uh, to address and the tools are helping them but if you are secure from the start you are not getting into that point this is a really good point see it no, I like that. And also because, you know, it's a frequent thing that comes up like, you know, day zero, day, day one, day two, looking at Kubernetes is, and it seems, whether it's Kubernetes or lots of other areas, you know, it seems like security is something that's put on, you know, after the fact, not necessarily from the very beginning. Um, and like you said, precisely because I want to click that download button. I want to get things installed as quickly as possible. And I want to start playing around with things. Um, don't wait until you have a security problem to start taking security seriously. Um, so as you mentioned, there, there are firms out there like Sneak, like Shippo, like other companies that are addressing this. Um, but I think a lot of it probably comes down to a culture and mindset about taking security seriously. And, and I think I saw from uh, shout out to Chris Short from Red Hat. To get a post that like the average ransomware payment is now around five hundred thousand uh, dollars. I, I don't quote me on that, but I saw something like that. Maybe it's difficult to know exactly what the average ransom uh, payment is. Um, but but regardless, it, this is costing companies a significant amount of money. Um, don't want to make your life more stressful than it already is in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, having those things in mind are probably good. Another thing that I wanted to ask, um, you know, we we did mention Kubeflow. Are there other, you know, tools that are out there that you've worked with um, that that you think might provide similar results, or that you that you might be able to compare? So, specific uh, running under the cluster with Kubernetes. Uh, no, I didn't work with that. In my previous company, we had the production layer and handle it in, in order to have a specific requirements in response time. It was very it's, when you have a workflow engine like Kubernetes, it's usually very hard to tune to a specific response time. And sometimes in security, it's very, very limiting in the tools you can use. Okay. Um, so for the, for the, for folks that want to get involved in this, start with Kubeflow. I mean, there's good documentation. Um, it's something that's pretty well tested now at this point. Um, so that's good. That's good to keep in mind too. Um, I, just one more thing, you can yeah. also run most of the things, uh, if not all, on your local applet because you, because it's a cluster and you can run it uh, locally. Okay. It's also a barrier usually when you're talking about other system where some of the services are available only online. Okay, so that's another another factor to keep in mind. It can be done locally. I guess uh, with, with that in mind, we're pretty much right on time. So great job getting the demo done because sometimes you know demos can be a little bit tricky. Um, but but like I said, I think this was very very solid, well explained from beginning to end, and and we got some great feedback and interaction from the audience. Speaking of which, all right, we are our community is always dependent on the input from our from our audience, from our our users, if we want to call it that. Uh, just as we were starting out in the beginning in terms of how all things got started in Barack's company of, about interacting with users and really seeing what they want. We need your feedback, all right? We really, really need your feedback. So I'm gonna leave our Google Forms in the, uh, in the chat. It will only take one minute. And if you leave your name, we don't need your email address, just your name. Um, you will be eligible to win some swag that will be announced at the end of the month in our, in our Slack, all right? If you don't wanna leave your name, it's totally fine too if you prefer to remain anonymous. But this is the way that we can see what kind of content you would you would like to see? Um, what kind of things you learned from Brock's session today, um, and 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 other things that we can keep in mind as we grow as a community. While we are doing that, uh, we have a bit of a tradition, Brock. That uh, while you were while you were talking, we have an amazing artist. Um, his name is Angel, and let me know when you can see my screen. Oh yeah. So while you were talking, he created this uh, as an artistic representation of the wow. different concepts that were being mentioned. So we have a nice like laboratory sort of environment. We get the uh, the wonderful logo from Lake FS2 um, that Angel also mentioned. I will share this with you in Slack. 
Uh, there's a rock and roll group from Spain that refers to the name. I think you said Axolot is the name of the, the fish walking, Mexican walking fish is what it's also called. Uh, so we'll have to check that out because that's like a little interesting uh, piece of information. Uh, but anyway, I thought this was very complete. We got the background on how we got to this point and then also a very nice demo to seeing it come to life, uh, which you did very well and there were no issues there. So that's good too. Um, thank you very much for, for folks that would like to know more about Treeverse. They're quite easy to find. LakeFS is easy to find too. Any other information you'd like to share, Barack, before we finish? No, thank you very much for having me. It was very, very nice to share this information with you. Very, very good. Hopefully our paths will cross in the future. Uh, looking forward to see what's going on um, more in your space. Also, the, the other, like I said, the, the, the other side of all this is, is being able to interact with people in other countries. Hope everything continues to improve uh, in Israel as, it, as it, we all hope that it does in, in the rest of the world. I feel like we're more kind of together than ever. Um, so sending lots of positive vibes your way and hope to have you back uh, for another session in the future. Thanks to everyone for joining us. Uh, as usual, check us out on YouTube. We're on Twitter. We're on Slack. Always looking for new ideas, new people to join. Brock, thank you very much and have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Bert. Bye. All right. Take